Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Humanity is a storytelling species. Storytelling is the way in which we order, understand, remember and explore both the world and ourselves. We communicate with the exchange of stories, some functionary and mundane, others obscure reflections of reality, and still others, epics, which speak to the nature of being. Tales told in reminiscence, in aspiration, with pride or malice. Stories nonetheless. Both the most frivolous and thoughtful expression of the human condition, stories of the diet on which we nurture the thinking of our children, and the way in which we will be eulogised on passing. They are an expression not only of what we know and think, but of what we want to know, what we wish to discover. The novel, in this context, may be considered as an implement of examination, a microscope under which we scrutinise, learn and experiment, the ship in which we sail to discover unknown lands. Through the novel, we seek. Hi there and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Angus. This is a new podcast sponsored by Pantera Press and those beautiful words I just read were written by Australian author Solari Gentle in an article published in Southerly Journal called Discovery Through Story. We're very excited to have Solari here for our first ever podcast. Solari, welcome. Thank you, Angus. Here's the part where I inform you of your life story. Please do. (laughs) Um, So you were born in Sri Lanka, learned English in Zambia, grew up in Brisbane and went to Canberra to study astrophysics before swapping to a law degree. So where did that fascination with astrophysics come from? When I was a child, we migrated to Australia when I was about six years old and we came from Africa. Um, So my my parents had uh, gone to Zambia for five years and that's where I had learned to speak English and that's where I started school. And we came, as many migrants do, through Melbourne and we came straight from temperate Zambia into the midst of an Australian summer. And we had this little brick veneer box in a a new suburb called Noble Park North in Melbourne. And at night it was just too hot to sleep. So we'd troop out every night and we'd lie on the lawn. Um, And it was still hot, but it was a little bit more pleasant than being in the house. Um, And my father would tell us stories and we'd be lying on the grass looking up at the night sky and at that time you could still see a beautiful night sky in the uh, in the suburbs of Melbourne Mm. Um, and he would tell us stories about uh, the constellations and the the stories that were woven into the stars and so from that point on whenever I looked up at the night sky I'd get this sudden thrill and, and this feeling of wonder and magic. And, of course, I thought that meant I should be an astrophysicist. <laughs> and, and so that's how that came about. It was just a mistake. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, so when I and, – and, it, it you know, to, to this day I look up at the stars and it's, it's a feeling of it's, – it's indescribable. It's the, a feeling of amazement, a feeling of how small you are, uh, a feeling of wonder – 
And I, um, I honestly thought that I was meant to spend my life looking at the stars. And so I went to university. Uh, well, I finished high school and I went to university to study astrophysics. And to my great disappointment, I realised when I was studying astrophysics that my professors seemed to think that my beautiful magical stars, which held the stories of the world, were balls of gas. <laughs> well, what do they know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, and I was uh, I was incredibly disappointed. But I think um, what I I realised through that process is what I had fallen in love with was not the physical stars themselves, but the stories that had been woven into them. Um, and so, uh, so you know, that was possibly the first indication that that was what I was supposed to be doing. But I must have been slightly thick because I didn't actually turn to writing after that. I became a lawyer. <laughs> and you've actually said that that career in law was still a good precursor to becoming a storyteller for a living, right? Oh, the law is a storytelling profession. Mm. Um, it is about uh, creating a case is about telling a story. And the more persuasive your story, the more persuasive your case. Yeah. Um, so it seemed it seemed to satisfy me for a very long time, uh, satisfy whatever urge I had to tell stories and um, but I think at some point when you're a lawyer you don't like to be making things up too often <laughs> and um, and certainly they don't like you to say that you're making things up um, in in terms of fiction and so it was that drive to be unfettered from fact um, that saw me turn to writing novels I think. Do you remember that moment where you first sort of sat down with a pen and paper or a keyboard with the ambition that you were going to write a story. Oh, I do, but it wasn't. It wasn't an epiphany like that. It wasn't. It. It sounds like it should be something grand and life changing, um, something primal, but it just wasn't. I had uh, become a serial hobbyist, um, and I. Th I suppose in hindsight, what it was was me trying to fill whatever creative urge was not filled by the law. And so I had, over the years, acquired a mass of hobbies, which I would do very intensely uh, for about six months until I'd mastered it and then move on to something else. So, you know, I've quilted, I've done stained glass, I've done welding, I can pregnancy test your cows. <laughs> it was all all mad grand scale hobbies. And I, I started writing a novel on exactly the same basis. I'd finished the welding course and I thought, what am I going to do to keep myself occupied? Oh, I'll write a novel. And I just sat down and I started to write. But what happened was the the realisation dawned very quickly that this was not an ordinary hobby, that I was getting something from it that no other hobby had given me. And once I started, it became very clear to me um, that it was, well, it seemed as natural as breathing. And the thought of stopping was like the thought of stopping breathing. It was just not on the cards. Yeah, and far less equipment than welding, yes. I would imagine. <laughs> far less helpful. equipment. <laughs> yes. um, so you now live on a farm in the Snowy Mountains. That's right. Um, with a bunch of animals and somewhere in there a child named after Atticus Finch of To Kill a I've got, I've got two sons. <laughs> I've got my eldest son is Edmund mm -hmm. uh, and my youngest son is Atticus. Yes, he was Fantastic. named after. Fantastic. 
Um, I also read somewhere that you grow black truffles. Is that still a thing, or is that one of the six still, months? Still a thing. The we've had the today the was the first snowfall of the season, which usually signals the start of hunting. Um, so we have a a little property, and we grow French black truffles on the property. And so every winter, I'm out there in gumboots with the dog. Uh, hunting truffles. I was going to ask which animal you employ to find the truffles because you can use (laughs) pigs as well, can't you? I know, but I I think uh, the pigs is a bit of a romantic fallacy because pigs get very big and they like truffles. (laughs) Ah, I (laughs) see the problem there. Yeah, wrestling a thousand (laughs) kilo pig for a truffle (laughs) is is not going to work well, Uh, whilst dogs will find the truffle for you because they love you uh, and they don't want to eat it. Fantastic. Um, So this place is where I'm assuming most of your writing happens. Yes. Um, You're perhaps best known for the award-winning Roland Sinclair mystery novels, which are set in the 1930s and feature the artist-turned-amateur detective Roland Sinclair. The first of these novels came out in 2010, Uh, so presumably you've been living with this character, Roland, for close to a decade. For people who haven't met him yet through your books, how would you introduce Roland Sinclair? Well, he's uh, he's a man of um, amazing breeding and courtesy, so uh, he'd probably be doing the introductions as protocol demands, (laughs) not me. He'd probably be appalled that I was doing the introductions. But if I was forced to introduce him, I would would say that uh, he is a young man who walks the line between a conservative establishment background of enormous wealth and enormous privilege um, and his natural inclination to spend his time with uh, the artistic, the left-wing artistic set of uh, Sydney. And so he he's interesting as a character in that respect because he is uh, accessed uh, or he has access to both worlds, the left and the right. Um, but he, in some ways, he's regarded suspiciously by both as well. Yes, yeah, so as I said before, the novels are set in the 1930s in Australia and beyond, and they delve into the political and ideological conflicts of the times, as you were just talking about. But it was actually a sort of pragmatic decision to oh, of course. <laughs> set these books in that time period, right? It was, yes. I was. Um, I, I started writing... Um, mythic fiction. So uh, generally they are uh, fantasy or fantasy novels that are based on Greek mythology because, you know, it goes back to the stars um, and and the Greek myths that my father used to tell me. Um, And so when I started writing, that's where I naturally went, um, the place where I fell in love with story for the first time. Uh, But I I happen to be married to an English teacher an historian, and he is that very, very valuable of things for writers. He's a he's a captive editor, and uh, so it was my habit to write and hand the manuscript to him, chapter by chapter, for him to cast an eye over it and check it for common sense, if nothing else. And um, Michael, uh, Michael would do that dutifully because um, he's a little bit afraid of me, I think. Excellent. And <laughs> and uh, and, but what what Michael Michael is from the country in uh, in New South Wales, and so he actually found Greek names um, 
were difficult for him to pronounce. So he'd read Agamemnon and Achilles and Scamandrios and uh, etc. And he he would say to me, he'd have to stop and think, how does this sound? And does that is that the same as the last collection of letters that I tried to pronounce? <laughs> and and uh, one day he. Um, he just got fed up after reading a manuscript and he said to me, yes, yes, it's all very well, but can't you write, so- write something with names like Peter and Paul in it <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and make it a murder? Everyone likes a murder. Uh, so, you know, at the, at the time I ignored him because you do. Um, but but I, what I had realised is that when I fell in love with writing, I fell in a big way. I didn't just, you know, gently start an affair, I fell madly in love. And it was very easy for me to disappear into my own head. And your head is a wonderful place for a writer because there's other people in there and there's worlds and um, it's entertaining and interesting and there's people to talk to. But for the people you live with, all of a sudden they're living with someone who's largely absent. And I had realised that, you know, that what would happen is I'd go into my book and, you know, occasionally pop my head out and say, yes, dear, and move on while Michael would be talking to me. And I just, we weren't, we weren't engaging. But I, and I also realised that, you know, I wasn't going to stop, that it was, you know, I was done. Uh, I was completely and utterly given over to writing and I would never stop. But I had no plans of getting rid of Michael either. So I needed to I needed to make the world in my head work with the world, the real world I lived in. And so I it occurred to me that one way of doing that is instead of coming out of my own head would be to bring Michael into into it. Um, and so I set about thinking, well, what kind of book would really engage him that he would care about enough? Uh, that he would actually come into my head and share that time without me being, you know, uh, called out to be a real person every now and then. And uh, he, he's an historian. His particular area of expertise is the extreme political movements of New South Wales in the 1930s. Perfect. So what I essentially did was I grabbed his thesis <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote a novel into it. Um, And it's worked out really well because uh, I'm writing in Michael's area of history. So he's interested in the books, but not only is he interested, he's also committed to making sure that I don't make a mistake with the history. Yes, fantastic. So that takes the pressure off me Mm. because I know that nothing will get past him. Um, He won't let an anachronism or uh, a fallacy slide through. Uh, And I can relax and just make things up, which is what I like to do. (laughs) That is an excellent system. In that article that I read from at the start of the podcast, you wrote that the wildest parts of your books are often the truthiest, really. Yes. Um, I love that word, truthiest. Truthiest? Truthiest. I don't think it's a word, it but is I a word think now. maybe we should introduce it, yeah. especially in today's political climate. Oh, look, I'll put it in the next novel. It'll be a word. Fantastic. <laughs> then we'll get into the Macquarie Dictionary and then we're done. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> um, and I was reading that the the sort of weirdest, wackiest, strangest bit of that first book is, is it the Fascist Legion? The Fascist Legion, yes. The Fascist Legion were uh, an actual group. Um, and they were an offshoot of the New Guard, and they used to get about in Ku Klux Klan outfits that were black, essentially, So that were sewn up by their wives, and they used to go out and beat up communists, um, and that's here. <laughs> uh, so I, I used to... I found 
that sort of thing wonderful? You know, initially, whilst it was a pragmatic approach to writing in this era, very quickly I became fascinated by what I was finding out. And because I grew up in Brisbane, I had no idea. I vaguely knew there was a Sydney Harbour Bridge and, and that it was opened at some point, but um, the whole story of De Groot and the cutting of the ribbon and the new guard and the old guard and, and the, the fascist movements that were um, moving around in New South Wales in the 30s and the rise of the communists, that was all new to me. Uh, bearing in mind that, you know, through high school and early university, I, was, I had studied maths and science because I was going to be an astrophysicist. So somehow all of this history, Australian history, had passed me by. And of course, I had been married to Michael for several years and it was his area of expertise, but it's one of those things that um, it was always just in the background. I vaguely knew that Michael's had studied something about political movements in the 1930s, but it was one of those things where you don't ask too much in case he decides to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> And so until I actually started writing, I hadn't actually uh, discovered the detail of what was going on at the time. And so it was just, it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, there's a particular scene in that first book that takes place at the Berrimah Jail, which the new guard was preparing as a prison because they intended to kidnap Cabinet and hold them there. Now, that was true. Uh, I didn't make that up. So quite, uh, you'll see in all of my books, all the chapters start with an actual newspaper excerpt. And the reason for that was when I first sent the manuscript away, I was getting back editorial comment that often said, you know, we like the story, but you went too far here. This is ridiculous, unbelievable. And the bits that they were picking out as ridiculous and unbelievable were the actual bits of history right. that were put in there. So the excerpts, but you're not there to argue with the reader. And it's one of those things that uh, writers and magicians in some ways, we, we cast spells. Mm. Um, and the spell we cast on the reader is one of plausibility and believability. If you lose them, for whatever reason, even if it's unjust, you lose them. Uh, if they think that you are tricking them or, or not uh, playing by the rules, um, if they think that you're playing hard and fast with history, even if you're not, you lose them. So those excerpts were there just basically to prepare the reader for the fact that history was strange. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely love the inclusion of those little snippets of um, newspaper articles. And it got me thinking as well, because you look at them and the language is so quaint and what they focus on sometimes is so weird yeah. and weirdly formal. But then I was like, actually, people, you know, in 70 years into the future, looking back on now, are going to judge us just as harshly. So. Exactly. Well, I, I actually, I love trolling through the newspapers of that era because they were also so well written. Mm. Uh, there was a certain um, artistic flair to journalism back then. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be less so nowadays. I don't want to insult any journalists, but there seem to be uh, more of a tolerance of, um, of style in, in the journalistic articles of the 1930s. Absolutely, which makes them a joy to read within themselves um, in your book too. I think as well, going back to the, the Harbour Bridge thing, I think the cover of your first book gives people a really good visual of where we are in history because the cover has some of the characters of the book looking out a window and it has the Harbour Bridge and it was constructed it, from both ends and they're just about to meet. Exactly. Just about to meet. 
Um, so what year would that have been completed? The 1932. 1932. Yeah, so in, um, it was April, March, late March 1932, the Harbour Bridge was opened. And that was when uh, Sir Francis de Groot, well, no, not Sir Francis, Francis de Groot at the time, uh, famously charged the ribbon and cut it before Premier Lang could do so. With a... With a sword, but With it wasn't. Sword, but yeah. it, I think it was. <laughs> when you read the extracts, it was a ceremonial sword, so it wasn't very sharp. So even though you know they talk about him coming through and slashing the ribbon, he didn't really. He kind of had to hold it and saw it through. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't as dramatic. <laughs> it as wasn't that as that sword, dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> which you know, which made me think at the time when I was reading all this, the fact that he wasn't charged before he could and and pulled off his horse and and stopped before he could cut the ribbon is perhaps uh, that they knew he was going to do it and they thought it would be a good thing if he did. Uh, because what happened uh, essentially after that is the New Guard got a lot of bad press. So until that point in time, the New Guard was very much in favour uh, in New South Wales. Thousands and thousands of people were, were members. And we were, you know, we were facing possibility, the possibility of a revolution. Um, after the De Groot incident, there was um, a lot of bad press for for the new guard, and on top of that, um, Bill Mackay, who was uh, who was the police minister at the time, not minister, he was the police commissioner at the time. He had him committed. Um, so instead of putting him in jail and turning him into a martyr, he treated him like a madman and had him committed, which was very clever. Yeah. Uh, at the time, so it was it was quite an interesting period for absurd um, attempts or absurd events, um, but also full of very much larger than life characters. And one of the things that I always find really interesting is that these people weren't necessarily evil; they believed very much in their cause. So even the New Guard and the, the various fascist movements, they. It wasn't necessarily that they, you know, wanted world domination or anything of the sort. There was this real fear of communists uh, and there being a communist takeover, bearing in mind that, you know, the the Bolsheviks had taken Russia just, you know, a decade and a half before. And there was that fear uh, of a communist uprising that would change the status quo. So it was, yeah, it's a really interesting period, very underwritten in Australia because it's bookended by the very glamorous 1920s and the war. Yeah. Um, but I find the 1930s particularly interesting because in the 1930s was fermented all the feelings and the passions and the prejudices that led to the war. Um, so I, I find it a very elucidating time. And this sort of the clash between, you know, people like the New Guard and you know, uprising communists... That's sort of something you continue to explore throughout your books, right? Yes, yes. I, I, interestingly, I thought I was writing history when I wrote the, wrote the first book. Um, but uh, more and more I'm realising that what I'm writing about is not necessarily relegated to history. So the 1930s were a time where you saw uh, an economic crisis uh, followed by hardship economic hardship. Then you saw the rise of extreme cults of personality and demagogues with extreme politics. Um, you saw the scapegoating of parts of society uh, for the ills of all of society. Now, that's all very familiar. 
Absolutely. I was just about to say, yeah. Um, so interestingly enough, one of the... One of the saddest things, in a way, is that when I started writing, I was really intrigued as to how the Holocaust happened, how we as a society, and in the 1930s, we were quite an advanced society, or the Western world was quite an advanced society, um, how we got to the stage where we would mass murder so many people and children. and, um, And interestingly, and how, how ordinary people could just turn a blind eye as to what was happening. Um, Interestingly, current events are teaching me how that can happen. And it's simply a matter of wearing people down. People can't protest and fight every second of the day. And so even if you think that something is terribly wrong, you may write letters, you may go out to a protest, but you'll still have to go to work. You'll still have to feed your children. Yeah, you'll still have to pay your bills. And I, and I presume that that's what happened in the 30s. It got worn down and became normal. And we're seeing a lot of that today where things that once upon a time we would consider appalling have become normalised. Um, so it's interesting, uh, a little bit terrifying because we all know how it ended last time. Um, so... It's yeah. It's 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 an interesting it's an interesting series to write, not only for what did happen, but what, for what's happening now. Absolutely, yeah. And the most recent um, instalment, the one that's out on shelves now, is a dangerous language mm-hmm. that kicks off with the murder of a communist agent on the steps of Parliament House. I remember seeing a fabulous recreation of the cover of that. Yes. Um, so all, all of your well, the books in the Roland Sinclair series all have this fabulous retro sort of yes. red, black and yellow vibe, which is great. And was it actually you in that photo that recreated no, the, the no, dead the per- body on Parliament House the, steps? The dead body was actually uh, Graham West, uh, the Honourable Graham West, who was once the Minister for Juvenile Justice in New South Wales. <laughs> wow. Okay. Not just some desperate NIDA no, grad that no. needed some acting work? Okay, <laughs> no, cool. No, no, no. We, uh, we had just launched the book at Old Parliament House yeah. and he had been the interviewer. Um, and uh, he came out and volunteered to recreate <laughs> the the cover on the steps of Old Parliament House. That's such a fantastic Which idea. Is, I yeah, love it was that. fabulous, <laughs> and he was he was appropriately dressed <laughs> and 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 looked perfect in that part. So that was his acting debut. <laughs> fantastic. Um, so with that book, um, you've written as well. You know, obviously with the historical crime genre that you're writing in, you've got to be historically accurate. But equally, you've written that you sort of look for the holes in history Mm. that you can fill with speculation. And that's where the fun part is, I would imagine. That is, that is. Well, that's where you get to make things up. Yeah. So unlike historians who want to find fact, we, the historical fiction writers, we like fact but we want the holes. What we're looking for is the bits where nobody knows. We know that A happened. We know that B happened. We don't know how we got from A to B. Mm. And that's when you can write the plausible fiction to fit in there. So theoretically, um, a good historical fiction, you shouldn't be able to tell what bit's made up and what bit isn't. Um, And... And that's uh, and the technique for that is simply looking for the holes, the bits that nobody knows what actually happened. So nobody could can say 
it didn't. Um, so I, I always think of uh, what I'm writing is a plausible history. It didn't happen that way, but it could have. Okay. Uh, there's nothing in the world to say that it didn't. Yeah. So what gap or hole, I guess, did you find that a dangerous language fell into? Um, a dangerous language um, was... I was really interested in the arrival of Egon Kish in in Australia. And Egon Kish was a Czechoslovakian journalist. He had been one of the first people who had been interned at Dachau uh, in in Berlin in the roundup of communists post the Reichstag's fire. He was deported back to Czechoslovakia and he spent the rest of basically his life until after the war going around the world talking to people about the dangers of the Nazis. And he was met with oppositions from government because a lot of governments were actually following a policy of appeasement. They didn't want people angry at uh, Hitler's Germany. They wanted to negotiate their way out of it and um, people like Kish were considered to be romantic, uh, communist um, rabble-rousers. And so when he tried to get into Australia... um, they uh, Australia used the Immigration Act, which is probably more colloquially known as the White Australia Policy, yep. to keep him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, after being t- did not after being not allowed to get off the ship at Fremantle and then again at South Australia, he jumped off the ship uh, in Melbourne and broke his leg. And they bundled him back onto the ship without any medical care, gave him a couple of powders, which I presume was like a Bex, <laughs> and, uh, and sent the ship on its way with the intention of returning him to Europe that way. Uh, but of course, by the time the ship landed in uh, Sydney, the communists had got their acts together and started a case in the court to let him off the ship. Uh, but what I was really interested in is that point at which he jumped. Why? Why exactly did he jump? And uh, that was where I started playing with plausible fictions um, as to the what made him... Because, he, you know, he still had another stop in Sydney. Um, so why did he get desperate enough to jump off the ship in Melbourne? And as well, didn't they try and test him... With Scottish Gaelic or something oh, yeah, as an did, excuse to well the the uh, well once he got to Sydney then they applied the the dictation test and uh, I was always particularly interested in the wide Australia policy because part of part of the reason that I spent five years in Africa is when uh, when my parents first applied to come to Australia the wide Australia policy was still around. And so they were turned away. But the Australian customs official or the person at the embassy had said to my dad, I'll just look, go away and do something for five years and the policy will be gone. There's a new government in Australia and it's on its way out. And so um, my family, like many families, uh, went to Africa. 
and Dad took a five-year contract and worked for five years. With And the intention was always to come to Australia. So I was always a little bit intrigued by the white Australia policy. But the fact that it was, you know, in use until the 1970s is interesting. But what they did with Egon... Interesting is the kind <laughs> word. <laughs> what they did with Egon Kish is uh, he was, of course, European, very clever journalist, and he spoke lots of languages. So they had given him the test in Russian, and etc., etc., and he passed. So what they decided to do was to give him the test in Scottish Gaelic. Um, and he didn't actually fail it because he refused. He was so outraged when they gave him the test in Scottish Gaelic. But interestingly, they also the dictation test was the Lord's Prayer in Scottish Gaelic, um, bearing in mind that he was a communist Jew or Jewish communist. Um, uh, so uh, exposure to the Lord's Prayer seems a little bit... or Well, the Lord's Prayer seems like a bit of a churlish sort of uh, thing to, to select. And he, he refused to to fill it in. He thought it was outrageous. He thought um, – and he just threw the pen away. And, of course, they sent him to jail for that. And he, in fact, was sentenced to three months with hard labour with a broken leg. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> and, and, yeah, so, so all of that happened um, and that's all part of our history. And he's, he's one of those people occasionally when you're reading, you, you just get drawn to a character and Egon Kish was one of those characters. I mean, there's been other characters in the book. Annie Besant was another one. Albert Goering was another one. Um, and they, they're all people that seem to shine from the pages in history but in some, to some extent seem to have been forgotten. Um, so one of the things that... I have the privilege of doing is actually shining the light back on some of those people that really were extraordinary, uh, but somehow have been forgotten out of convenience or, um, or other things that occurred or the fact that there's, you know, um, the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that, you know, that, that is one of the, the joys and the privileges of writing the Roland Sinclair series, to actually have him meet those people in history that intrigue me. And how do you go about reanimating those forgotten people? Is it easy to find scraps of them back in sometimes, history? Sometimes. Sometimes there's a lot uh, on them. So with Egon Kish, he actually wrote... Uh, a book about his travels to Australia. So it was very easy to find his voice. Sometimes it, there's very little. So uh, Ethel Bruce, who is the wife of Stanley Melbourne Bruce, Australia's eighth prime minister, very little on her. But in a way, that was just as much fun because there was almost nothing um, on her in the record. I could just make her up. You really can't lose as <laughs> historical fiction writer, can yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. You In find a whole bunch of stuff that's amazing. You can't. That's fantastic too. Yeah, you get yeah, to exactly. have fun. Exactly, exactly. Which is, you know, the the fiction part of the title is the get out of jail free card. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and on a dangerous language as well. The other sort of, uh, I think, real event that you are riffing off here is the pajama girl murder. Yes. What was that? Well, the pajama girl was a young woman who was found just outside Aubrey. And uh, she became known as the Pajama Girl because she was found wearing pajamas, and it would have been those um, those sort of Oriental pajamas that were all the rage in the twenties. They were sort of like um, uh, sort of a, a jacquard, sorry, ori- Oriental fabric, silk, and so on. She was found in that. She was found stuffed uh, into a culvert, 
and she had been set alight and burned. So they couldn't identify her. Um, and they set about trying to identify her, but nobody had been reported missing. Um, so what they did is they basically embalmed her and they put her on display. Whoa. Um, so you went, uh, so she was at dis- on display at the New South Wales, um, uh, University of New South Wales. And I think they actually even took her around to the Sydney show and so on to try and get people to identify her. So she was the word on everybody's lips, uh, was the pyjama girl. Who was she? She was this big mystery. Um, so in if I was writing a Roland Sinclair book yeah, set in 1934, as that one was, it's impossible to leave out the pyjama girl. Right. Um, to be historically correct, if, if she was there and everybody was talking about it, it'd be um, like writing, you know, a story that's set now without making any mention of the royal wedding or, uh, or something that was, you know, at, at the time very, very current. And the pyjama girl was in all the newspapers and everybody was talking about her and, and the fact that she was being, you know, displayed everywhere. Uh, interestingly enough, she was identified as Linda Agostini, but only 10 years later. And looking at the case now, it looks like she wasn't Linda Agostini. It was just uh, Bill Mackay trying to clear things up because that was the outstanding unsolved murder. Um, Agostini had probably killed his wife, but nobody found the body. So they, uh, so they got him to say, yes, that's my wife. Linda Agostini, she's dead, and he got a very light sentence uh, in response. So there is a still to this day speculation about who the pajama girl really so was. So it's still a mystery to some degree. Yes, because it's pre that was you know pre DNA times. It's very hard to tell. But looking at the evidence, it's quite unlikely she was Linda Agostini. She was a wrong height and wrong facial structures and wrong hair colour, wrong hands and manicures and so on. But it was convenient to actually have the case solved. You've got another book that's standalone to the Roland Sinclair mysteries and it's called Crossing the Lines. Yes. But in a way, did your relationship with Roland inspire that book? Oh, yes, very much. Well, quite, quite often you are asked at writers' festivals and interviews about your relationship with your protagonist. And it occurred to me that people were actually quite interested in how writers related to these protagonists. And, you know, it makes sense. A lot of readers come to have their own relationship with Roland. Uh, And so they're curious about my relationship with him. And I've always been utterly immersive in the way that I write. And it's not really a technique, it's more an indulgence. For me, it's fun if I allow myself to believe as much as possible. It makes the process of writing easier. It it makes it more like spending time with friends than actually working. Um, and so I had, you know, I, I have always had that uh, relationship with Roland. And one of the things that it has always occurred to me as the beautiful part of writing is he is independent of me now. I could die tomorrow and he still exists in the minds of readers. Um, the moment you put that first book out, you're, you're giving your character's life that's completely independent of you. Um, and he exists in readers' heads, whether or not I, I exist. Um, so I was, I was playing with that idea with Crossing the Lines and I, I did... Um, 
I did always wonder at what point that immersive technique that a lot of writers use crosses the line into delusion um, and the point at which it becomes unhealthy or the point at which it becomes insane. <laughs> so uh, I was I was messing around with that idea um, when and and I and I do remember and it sounds absurd now a meme on Facebook where they were where they were talking about you know maybe I'm the character in someone else's book and my writer's a sadist having <laughs> 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 a particularly bad Monday maybe yeah exactly but it, it, it was that notion that I thought well that's intriguing you know what if um, what if you were the character in somebody else's book? And so Crossing the Lines is a story about two writers and they're writing, each, each of them is writing the other. And so you're never quite sure which one of them is the writer and which one of them is the protagonist uh, in the story. So I was playing with that entire notion with that and having a look at what actually happens in the publishing industry, what some writers feel, what some writers experience, um, and perhaps... Uh, shining a light to that. In a lot of ways, crossing the lines is uh, a bit of a love letter to the writing process. Um, because as much as, you know, that story um, has its has its difficulties or sadnesses, um, I hope it's really about the, at its heart, the joy that writing can bring you. Um, and the the liberation that it can give you because once you can go into a world in your head once you can write the story then you don't need to live anybody else's story um and it gives you a kind of an independence from reality yeah yeah and i mean speaking of the writing process i mean i think you've published something like 13 books within eight years the one question I have about that is how? <laughs> well, when you say I've published, it's, uh, it makes it sound like I'm doing it all myself. But I have publishers and yeah, they do of a lot of that work. All I do is write the books. And it's because um, I still love the process of writing. I'd still rather be writing than doing anything else. And so for me, um, it's not so much a discipline to write, it's a discipline to stop. There's a line in Crossing the Lines where um, the protagonist says she only feels truly herself when she's writing. And I think for me that's very much the case. I only feel truly, completely natural when I'm writing. And so it's very easy for me just to do book after book after book. Yeah, and speaking of book after book after book, just the day before we're recording this podcast, I've seen that you've announced the next one in the role yes. Sinclair Mysteries. yes. yes. What are you allowed to tell us about that? <laughs> uh, it's called All the Tears in China. Fantastic. Um, and it is uh, Roland Goes to Shanghai um, in that book. Um, I, and, and I was particularly intrigued by the politics of Shanghai um, at the time and what was going on in China. So whilst, you know, a lot of the world's focus was Europe and what was brewing in Europe, also in, in China there were some pretty appalling things happening uh, with the invasion of Manchuria and the tensions. Um, and Shanghai was really interesting to write in that I thought I was taking Roland to China, 
But Shanghai is not really China.、Mm. It was a it was a foreign port in China, so its culture was very eclectic, to say,、um, to put it simply, and it it drew a lot from a lot of the European、uh, countries that were in there,、um, while still being physically in in China. Um, so it it developed its very own culture that was very distinct and unique, and it seemed very much like a playground for expatriates, where the rules didn't apply. So everything was extreme, and、uh, everything was wild. Right.、Um, so there was wild parties and extreme actions, and people did things that they would never do at home.、Um, and so I was quite intrigued with that whole notion of. This playground for adults、um, in the '30s. So、uh, the book is set there. Yeah, and obviously it's very different now. But have you been to Shanghai? No, <laughs> no, only on Wikipedia.、Um, I, um, I, my father, my father made a trip to China, and I made him take lots of photos and tell me what he could. And、um, I talked to a lot of people. But then I'm writing Shanghai of the 1930s, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, so there, there would have been going to Shanghai now, would have maybe echoes and ghosts of Shanghai in the 1930s, but a lot of it's gone.、Mm. Um, so that was the same when I wrote、uh, Paving the New Road, which was set in Munich in、uh, 1933. That Munich is gone.、Uh, there's echoes and ghosts of it, but that Munich is gone. So, in some ways, it makes it easier not to be in a country when you're writing it because. Uh, I think the Shanghai of today may have adulterated my imagination for the Shanghai of the 1930s. Right.、It、sounds like you're passing up an excellent excuse to travel for work. <laughs> In inverted commas, there. Yeah. But- <laughs> yeah, I- I'll speak to my publishers. I really should go and check out my facts, shouldn't I? <laughs> Absolutely. I think so. I support that.、Um, as a last question, I'm presuming you get some time to read for pleasure. I'd love to know what you've been reading recently that's impressed you. Recently, the book that I really loved was *The Lost Pages* by Maria Perichich. She she won the Virgil for *The Lost Pages*, and it was a metafiction as well. And it was wonderful and clever and brave.、Um, so I really enjoyed that. I always enjoy Australian crime fiction.、Um, I think we have some of the best crime fiction writers in the world,、um, and people who are very passionate. But the one thing that I really Love about Australian crime fiction is it's not just about the murder.、Um, Australian crime fiction writers, in particular, seem to be talking about other things, other issues. They they really use crime fiction to hold a mirror up to society, and so I love that about Australian crime fiction、um, that it can, in the midst of a murder story, talk to you about issues that affect your day to day life. Certainly, I've never ever been disappointed by Australian crime fiction. I mean, absolutely, I completely second the notion that we've got the best crime fiction in Australia. Take that, Scandinavia! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're coming for you. <laughs>、yeah. um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Solari, and thank you for listening, listeners.、Um, you can find all of Solari's books at any good bookshop, including Good Reading's online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. And I would encourage people to look up reviews of all of Solari's novels online because, as far as I can tell, they're pretty raving across the board.、Um, thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for chatting to us, Solari.、Oh, thank you very much, Angus. <laughs>